I'm convinced that one of the reasons Leviticus is not all that popular among modern people is because it deals so much with a concept that is foreign to the modern mind or is an aberration to the modern mind and modern thinking, and that is sin. We don't like to admit that we're sinners. We don't like any teaching or theology that makes us somehow feel guilty and have to deal with our sin. And it's all through Leviticus. And unfortunately, people tend to look at it as an angry God viewing mankind angrily when it's a loving God seeking to eradicate man's guilt complex and man's sin. It's misinterpreted. There was a landmark book put out 20 years ago by Dr. Carl Menninger, a famous psychologist, psychiatrist. And Dr. Menninger talked about the modern approach and the failure of the modern approach, the modern psychological approach to see guilt as an aberration, to see guilt as foreign and something that people shouldn't have. The name of his work was Whatever Happened to Sin. He's not an evangelical Christian, but he wrote an interesting book, Whatever Happened to Sin. I wish more psychologists would read it. He said, quote, In all the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets, one misses any mention of sin, a word which used to be a veritable watchword of the prophets. It was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely if ever heard. Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty, perhaps, of sin that could be repented and repaired or atoned for? Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know. Tares are being sown in the wheat field at night. But no one is responsible. No one is answerable for these acts. Anxiety and depression we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings. But has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go, whatever became of it? People these days love any kind of reinforcement that tells them, I'm okay, you're okay. You know, I often will mention that guy who does that little skit. He kind of capsulizes that. I'm nice enough. I'm good enough. And there's a lot of people that that's where they're at. Yet there still is this tremendous underlying guilt complex that people have. And I've read the works of certain psychologists who have even said, I could release many of my patients if they knew they were forgiven of their past sins. I've watched, especially in a culture like India, where Hinduism embraces karma through reincarnation. You are what you are today because you're atoning for some sins of the past. You're in a lower caste in life because the way you acted in your past life, now you are atoning for your sins in this life, and no one should help you. No one should try to benefit you. No one should seek to lift you to a higher standard of living because this is your karma. And I would sin against the gods and the system if I'm trying if I try to help you. When you tell a person like that, when that person comes to realize, yeah, I am a sinner, but there's a God who will wipe the slate clean 
as far as the east is from the west, when a Hindu realizes that, there is an incredible liberation that happens when they realize that. And so the liberation is all through this book. Now, what happens? What should we do? What is our response when we finally admit, all right, I'm a sinner? And I think even unbelievers would admit, okay, listen, I admit I'm not perfect. I, I have my problems. I have my setbacks. I'm a sinner. Now, first of all, many people will try to cover it up and really not come to grips with it. They'll say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And they just try to cover it up and move on and forget it ever happened. And the guilt complex deepens. It worsens. The scripture says if we say that we have no sin, what are we? A liar. The truth is not in us. Proverbs says, whoever tries to cover his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. But our first response is we can refuse to admit it, seek to cover it up. David tried that, remember? He sinned, committing adultery with a married woman that he lusted after, committed sexual immorality with. She turned up pregnant. What did he do? Did he confess his sin? No, he brought Uriah, her husband, in, lied to him, tried to get him drunk, and eventually killed him, seeking to cover his sin, until Nathan the prophet came in, pointed his prophetic finger at him, and said, You are the man. But he sought to cover it. Another response that a lot of people have today, and I think by and large most people have this response, they admit it, that they're sinners, and they seek to lift themselves up from that place through self-help books, through therapy sessions, to feel good about yourself without really dealing with the sin issue. The best thing you can do, of course, is to admit it, seek forgiveness, be cleansed of it, and then have God change you and those patterns and those habits of sinful behavior. And enjoy the victory that can be ours. That's the best place for it. Now, in this chapter, we're dealing with leprosy a little bit again. The cleansing of the leper is mentioned in the first few verses, which I find interesting because in those days, there was no known cure for leprosy. Leprosy includes not only Hansen's disease, but a variety of skin diseases under the blanket umbrella of leprosy in chapter 13. Chapter 14 seems to narrow it down a little bit, dealing with Hansen's disease, leprosy. Though there was no known cure, there is provision in the law just in case God wants to heal a leper and offerings that would be given. I find that interesting. It's incurable, but here's the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now there are some beautiful examples in the scripture of lepers being healed. One classic story that I've always loved is the story of Naaman the Syrian in 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, Naaman was very widely respected in Syria. The king of Syria elevated him as a commander of the armed forces. He was a very um, courageous, brave soldier. He had won many victories for the Assyrian army. The problem with Naaman is that he was a leper. And the disease was having its effects on his body. In one of his raids into the nation of Israel, the Syrians took captive a young Jewish girl who became the servant of Naaman's wife. 
And one day they were talking, and she was talking to Naaman's wife, and she said, if only Naaman, my master, could go over to Israel and meet Elisha the prophet, he would heal him of his prophecy. I mean, of prophecy. He would heal him. As a prophet, he would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman went to the king of Syria and said, Boss, I hear that there is a prophet in Israel who can cure leprosy. Send me. king said, No problem. Let me send money, ten talents of silver, thousands of shekels of gold, and I'll even write a letter, a cover letter for you, saying, Heal this guy. So he actually wrote to the king of Israel and he said, Dear king, this is Naaman. I can vouch for him. Here's a bunch of money. Now cure him of his leprosy. The king looked at the letter ripped his garments, and he said, what am I, God, that I can kill or make alive? Elisha heard that the king had ripped his garments, which was a sign of deep emotional distress. And Elisha said, why did he tear his clothes? Relax, chill. Send Naaman to me, and he will know in all of Assyria that there is a prophet in Israel. So, and this is classic, Naaman approaches the house of Elisha. Elisha didn't even go out to meet this commander, this man of great standing, which would be deserved. Instead, he sends a messenger down to Naaman, one of his cronies, with a message. And the message is this, Naaman, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Now, this ticked Naaman off. He was infuriated. He thought, listen, I came all the way as a commander of the Assyrian army to this guy's house. He sends a messenger, and then he tells me to go dip in a river. Not only a river, but the Jordan River. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, the Jordan River is a muddy mess, especially in the south. I stood in the Jordan River one time to baptize a group, and I sunk up to my waist, and I'm six foot five in silt. I couldn't baptize them. I had to find another place up north. It's, it's muddy. It's not the prettiest river. It'd be like if somebody from the presidential cabinet came to Albuquerque and we said, go dip in the Rio Grande. <laughs> now you get the likeness. He'd become infuriated. And so Naaman says, you know, I came all the way and I expected the prophet to meet me and wave his hand over me or something. But he didn't do it. And he started walking away. And one of his men said, look, you came all this way. And if the prophet asked you to do some great thing, you'd probably do it. What have you got to lose? Go dip in the river. He said, aren't the waters of Damascus better than all the rivers in Israel? And he was probably right. But he humbled himself. And he dipped seven times. Now, what would you feel like if you were Naaman? You're, all your men are watching you. You're in a muddy river full of silt. And you dip down once. And you come up. You're all wet. And they're looking at you. Oh, how do you feel? Not, not any different. Try it again. Twice, three times, four, five, six. By this time, it's getting really old. You're feeling like a, a fool. After the seventh time, he got up, and Naaman's skin was pure, and he was completely healed of his leprosy. And he went back and told the king of Syria, and they knew that there was a prophet of God in Israel. It's a beautiful story of the cleansing of the leper. Then in the New Testament... Jesus is going through the towns of Galilee. He meets a man who's a leper. The leper sees Jesus coming and he says, uh, Jesus said, what do you want me to do? The leper says, I want you to cleanse me if you're willing. Jesus said, I'm willing. And he cleansed the man. And then Jesus said, don't tell anyone anything. Instead, 
go to the priest and do as Moses in the law commanded by bringing an offering. And you wonder, what was he talking about? Well, we're about to read the offering that was commanded. Now, in chapter uh, 14, we're going to kind of highlight it. Uh, It comes in three sections. There's three stages of his purification. The first few verses, verses 1 through 8, the leper is restored to the camp of Israel, his society. The next few verses, up to verse 32, he's restored to his home, his family. And then finally uh, is the cleansing of his house in verses 33 through 53. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing, or for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp. The priest shall look, and indeed if the leprosy is healed in the leper... Then the priest shall command to take for him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop. The priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it, and the cedar wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, and dip them in the, and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. He shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. Now this is a highly unusual ceremony. I've never seen anything like it and though we can subjectively try to tie every single element to the work of Jesus Christ and I think there is definitely a tie We just sort of want to cover some basics in this unusual ceremony. Now, there were two birds. I see one bird is representing the death of Jesus Christ by the slain bird, the other that flew away, a symbol of the resurrection. For it says in the book of Romans that he was slain for our transgressions and raised for our justification. The birds were slain. Notice in the first few verses, the priest had to go to the leper. The leper couldn't go to the priest, at least very far. Remember, lepers were ostracized. They weren't allowed in the city. They weren't allowed in the synagogue except a special room. They couldn't go into the tabernacle. Whenever they'd see anybody, they'd have to say, unclean. In other words, back off. I am going to put a disease on you if you come any closer. They were put out from society. Thus, the priest had to go outside the camp to where the leper was. Now remember in the Gospel of Luke chapter 17, it says, And Jesus entered a certain village, and there met him ten lepers who stood afar off. That's where they had to stand, afar off. They couldn't go, Hi, Jesus, I'm a leper. Nice to meet you. That's against the law. So they stood afar off, and Jesus saw them in their plight. But the priest had to go out of the camp to meet the leper. Isn't that suggestive of Jesus Christ? Again, remember last week's study, leprosy is a type of sin. It begins small, it begins insignificant, but it starts taking over the whole body. Sometimes it lasts an entire lifetime. It takes over. There was no known cure. Jesus Christ left heaven, came to earth to become a man, left the camp of heaven, so to speak, as our great high priest to touch those of us who have the sin problem. 
in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him, not anything was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus left heaven, poured himself out, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, came into our world to touch those of us who have the sin disease, the leprosy, leaving his own camp. We couldn't make it to the society of heaven. We were put out. We're ostracized. We have spiritual leprosy. You can't get to heaven on your own. Man can make it to the moon, bravo, but you can't fly to heaven. Knock on the door and go, God, I, I made it. Listen, with technology, we can now go to heaven. The only way is for God to come to you and to touch you and to pronounce you clean, as this priest did. Then as we go on, the leper had to wash his clothes, shave his head, wash his body, and then he was watched for seven more days. Remember, when he was pronounced unclean last week, we read that the priest watched him for seven days, then seven more days. Now it's sort of in reverse. The priest pronounced him unclean. Now for the priest to pronounce him clean, he goes to the ritual, shaves his body, shaves his hair. Then, as he's put into society, he's allowed to go to the camp of Israel, but he has to live outside of his tent for seven more days. He can't even get into his house. He has to live outside. He can be allowed in the camp, but not in his tent. Then he's examined again. He shaves his head again. He washes his clothes again, and he washes himself again. And then in verse 11 through 20, the sacrifices are given, and it's given in stages, much like the previous parts of the book. You bring a bull if you can't afford that. You bring lambs if you can't afford that. You bring turtle doves, or you bring lambs if you can't afford that. Pigeons or turtle doves, if you can't afford that, you bring grain offering. Oil was part of this ceremony, and part of the oil was taken and put on the ear, the big toe, and the right thumb of the person who came to be cleansed of his leprosy. You should know, though, that verse 11 through 20 in Hebrew is one extended sentence. In other words, the action of the ceremony is a continuous kind of a thing, as that leper stood at the tabernacle door. Now, verse 33 through 53, as we mentioned, is, the, is an interesting thing. It's cleansing a house for leprosy. Now, the idea here, I think, is... Uh, dry rot or mildew or some kind of fungus that would attach itself to the walls of a house. And they went through much the same elaborate kind of a ceremony. They'd examine it. And if it had red or little green pits in it that sunk deeper than the surface of the wall, you know, they would cut it out, they would remove the stone and replace the stone with some brand new one so the fungus wouldn't spread. Then they would take the plaster. Now imagine this, if you've ever drywalled a house. They would scrape the plaster off of all the walls in the house. Take the pilings of defiled dust and scrapings, put it in an outside, unclean, special place, a garbage dump. Then they'd have to replaster the whole house. If that didn't work, the whole house was condemned and it was pronounced unclean. Now look at verse 54. It begins a summary statement of all of chapter 13 and 14. This is the law for any leprous sore and skull, for the leprosy of a garment and of a house, for a swelling and a scab and a bright spot, to teach what is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of leprosy. Now we get to chapter 15. I See, I told you we'd highlight it. Now chapter 15 
talks about being ceremonially unclean because of a bodily discharge. A bodily discharge, either by a disease or even a natural body fluid. A natural discharge. I've got to say that by the time of Jesus Christ, the oral tradition among the Pharisees had gotten so ridiculous that they took some of these things to extremes as who was defiled and who was not defiled. Remember, some of the Pharisees were so paranoid about getting spiritual cooties, about being ceremonially unclean, that they would hold their robes close to themselves and they would swiftly walk down the street. They didn't want their robes to touch anybody, Jew or especially Gentile. They often wouldn't even walk on the street where the dust of a Gentile had settled, lest they become unclean. Certain Gentiles were known as dogs. Some extreme Pharisees says that God created the Gentiles to kindle the fires of hell. They took this to an extreme. That kind of mentality would then look down upon anybody who had a disease. Because if you had a disease and your body gave off a discharge, you're going to make me unclean. And there was even a belief, now see if this doesn't sound familiar. Among some of the Jewish people of Jesus' time, it was very popular, some of the disciples at first even believed it, they had to be corrected by Jesus, that if you had a physical disease, you were not as holy. You were not as godly. You were living a Satan-defeated life. And if you were walking a godly life, you would be perfectly clean and perfectly whole and always healthy. With that kind of an attitude, much like the false teachers of today who espouse the same teaching, that if you're a real true Christian, you'll always walk in perfect health, that mentality robs them of compassion for those who are the underdog, for those who are ill. And I have seen it time and time again. I've seen people live under guilt because they have some sort of affliction, some sort of ailment. And it's really a tragedy. I'll never forget hearing a broken-hearted young man call me on the telephone one time who said, thank you for your study. I heard it over the radio today on healing and what the Bible says about healing and cleansing and disease. And I especially thank you because I am suffering a physical ailment. And I love my Lord, and I've asked Him to heal me for a long time. And I've trusted that He would, and I'm still having this disease. I don't know why. I've been drawn closer to Jesus because of it. But I still have it. And every time I go home, my parents say, you have no faith. You're living a Satan-defeated life. If you were really godly, you'd be healed. Think how that feels going home every day, hearing that, day in and day out, by your own folks. He said, I was at the end of my rope. Thank you for telling me what the Bible says about that. And that kind of thinking steals compassion from a person. It happened in the days of the Pharisees. Oh, how different Jesus was. Jesus reached out to comfort and to heal those people. The disciples one time saw a man who had a physical ailment from birth. They said, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither. This man or his parents sinned that he was born blind. But this is so that the glory of God might be revealed. Watch. And he was healed. But it wasn't because of a sin, directly or indirectly, that he was 
in that physical condition. And so, Jesus, in his typical manner, would come down hot and heavy on anybody who had that kind of a mentality. He went to the Pharisees who were so worried about keeping clean from bodily discharges and from ceremonial uncleanness. And he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all corruption. They kept the outward ritual, but the inward heart was defiled. Well, let's get into verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. This shall be his uncleanness in regard to his discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is stopped by his discharge. It is his uncleanness. Every bed is unclean on which he who has the discharge lies, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. Whoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. He who sits on anything on which he who had the discharge sat shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. And he who touches the body of him who has the discharge shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. If he who has the discharge spits on him who is clean. <laughs> That's dirty. Then he shall break his nose. No, then he shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. Any saddle on which he who has the discharge rides shall be unclean. These were running sores that were highly contagious or were suspected to be highly contagious. And God in his love is keeping them and having a separation for the health standard of this ancient nomadic people traveling through the desert. He doesn't want it to spread. And so they would be unclean, as it says here, until evening. And, you know, it says if the guy spits on you, that would be, you know, why would he do that? Of course, he could do it inadvertently. He could be talking and, you know, he could be the kind that is uh, very uh, motivated emotionally and just, you know, works himself into a frenzy. And, you know, he, instead of saying it, he sprays it. And uh, the person who had that happen is unclean. If you were to drink out of a vessel, if it was a wooden vessel, you would wash it. If it was a piece of pottery, you would break that pottery. It was defiled at that point and you throw it away. Now, making a spiritual correlation, this is exactly how God sees sin. God sees sin like running pus. And I can see a response on that one. That's a word picture. But God sees sin as flowing from the human heart totally unclean. Even you and all of your self-righteousness, God says, is as filthy rags. The Hebrew term is very graphic. It speaks of the menstrual cloth of a woman. So God sees self-righteousness, like a bodily discharge. That's what God says in the Bible. In fact, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 3 for a little perspective of how God views humanity apart from being cleansed something that he provided for mankind. Romans chapter 3 is the continuation of the diatribe against humanity trying to be right with God on their own. 
chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues, with their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we need cleansing. So the person says, oh, I'm a good person. Well, you might be, but with whose standard are you measuring? You might be better than the person sitting next to you. Of course, that person may disagree at this moment, but you might think you are. You say, well, I, I, I can name a few people that I'm better than. And compared to other people, you're probably a wonderful person. You can always find somebody worse. But are you good according to God's standard of goodness? Well, what's that? Well, Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Have you been that way lately? The man who came to Jesus said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that is God. That's God's standard of goodness. God's goodness. Are you that good? Of course, Jesus was either saying, I'm no good, or I am God. The only two inevitable logical conclusions. Why do you call me good? Whose standard are you measuring this by? So we need cleansing. God views the human heart as putting out that poison and flowing discharge, and we need to be cleansed from it. Now, you and I live in a world that is defiled. And just like these people would touch some person, some object, some saddle, sit on a bed and be defiled and need to be unclean and then cleansed till evening. You and I live in a defiled world. And I used to live in Southern California in the summertime. I'd shower early in the morning, every morning. By the time I got home, on a hot day with all of the smog in the air, I felt worse than when I woke up. I felt so laden with slime and dirt, I needed another shower. And it's sort of that way, just being out in the world. You can't rub shoulders with anyone and not have it affect you. What you watch affects you. What you listen to affects you. Who you hang out with affects you. It does. So we have to be careful and very selective as we're out in this world. If you wore clothes, lie in a bed, anything. You know, God is very detailed. God is concerned with their health. Would you look over at verse 16? If any man has an emission of semen, then he shall wash all of his body in water and be unclean until evening. And any garment and any leather on which there is semen, it shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. Also, when a woman lies with a man and there is an emission of semen, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Now you might say at this point, you know, God is kind of picky. He's detailed. He's sticking his nose into very private areas into the area of sex. But God invented it. I know that's news to some of you. You think God is a prude. Can't have any fun as a Christian. God invented it. And God in His love pokes His nose into every area of our life to make it whole and enriched. Now, the Jewish commentaries that I have read on this particular section, the Hebrew commentators, believe that this is not a directive for all of the people, for the layman. 
who was encamped around the tabernacle, but only the Levites who encamped in close quarters around the tabernacle. That as a priest, if they were to have relationships with their wives, that they would be unclean until evening. It would prohibit them from entering into the priestly office. Others see this in a context of venereal disease, and God is protecting all of Israel against possible diseases in the future. In verses 19 through 24, uh, the issue of blood is dealt with. In a woman's menstrual cycle, again, God is getting very detailed. It was a normal part of life. It was talked about then. It wasn't kept hush-hush like it is today sometimes. This issue of blood or the woman's menstrual cycle simply kept her away from people. It was not seen as sinful necessarily. It was simply, in fact, there was no offering to be given at the end of this. But she was kept away from people. Again, probably a reminder of sin passed on through the bloodline from Adam and Eve. The reminder of the fall. Verses 25 through 29 deals with the issue of blood. If the issue of blood, if the cycle is not a normal menstrual cycle, but it's extended for weeks, for months, even longer, then something is wrong and whoever touches her would become defiled if, again, somebody sits on the bed where she sat and on much of the same directives. She was unclean and whoever touched her was unclean. Now, keeping that in mind, think how the woman felt in the Gospels who had an issue of blood for 12 years. In fact, would you turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 8 for just a moment? It's always good to look at the scripture, read it, and compare it together. Turn there, Luke chapter 8. And of course, according to Leviticus here, she was to bring an offering at the end of this, if it ever did have an end. There's an abnormally long period with this woman who has the issue of blood in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 43. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? Now, first of all, imagine how she felt having this pain, having this flow of blood, having the protection that was needed with it. She knew the moment she, she was healed. She felt it. Imagine after 12 years of hopelessness what it was like to grab out and touch Jesus' garment. Now, he's in a crowd. People are pressing him all around. He always had a throng of people. Thus, the question Jesus asked is very insightful. Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng you and press you. And you say, who touched me? You know, it was an odd Who touched me? Hello? Everybody touched you. I touched you. John touched you. This woman touched you. The crowd's pressing on you. The question was meant for something else, but Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive power has power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Why? Because under the law that we just read, she was ostracized. She's unclean. But she was desperate. And in her desperation, she's there in the crowd. She came trembling, falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. For 12 years, completely shut off from society. 
In fact, she was not allowed to go in the crowd. She was there anyway. It's very, very unlawful of her. She knew that if she could touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and I believe the hem of Jesus' garment became a point of contact for her to release her faith. I don't think there was anything special in the hem of Jesus' garment. I don't think it glowed or floated. I think it was an ordinary garment. But she thought, if I touch it, I'll be healed. I know it. And the moment she touched it, she released her faith in Jesus. She cooperated with the desire of God to heal her to begin with. She was cleansed. Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You know, the touch of Jesus Christ. It was unlawful to touch a leper. Jesus touched a leper. It was unlawful to touch this woman. She touched Jesus. But everyone Jesus touched, they were cured. Now let's go back to Leviticus. Pick it up in verse 31 of that chapter. Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. So the idea is if you go into the tabernacle and you're ceremonially unclean because holy God is separate from man, you try to enter under any pretense, you'll die. The implication being that God would judge his people and kill them. This is the law for one who has a discharge and for him who emits semen and is unclean thereby and for her who is indisposed because of her customary impurity and for one who has a discharge, either man or woman, and for him who lies with her who is unclean. Now, i got to say, as I read this chapter, the lesson that I come away with is that God is concerned not just about my prayer life and my spirit, but my body. And that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body, you are meant to glorify God with your body. Your body is a temple. Now, what's supposed to take place in a temple? Worship, sacrifice. That's the purpose of erecting a temple. It's dedicated to the worship of God. Your body is to be dedicated to God, to serve Him, to worship Him. And God is concerned even in the details of your body. And God will poke His nose, or He wants to, into every area of your life to make it whole and complete even the sexual area of your life. Now, we live in a society, as you are well aware of, where sex has gone crazy, absolutely out of control, without any restraint, without any thought at all of what is right or wrong. People don't even know anymore. They don't even ask the question what's right or wrong. It's a sex-crazed world. Sex is given by God. And it is given by God to be fulfilling. It's not just meant for procreation. It's meant for fulfillment. And since God invented it, it was his idea. This, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined into his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Since it's his idea from the beginning. And the prototype is within marriage. If you want a fulfilling sex life, study the Bible. It's the best interpersonal relationship manual and even sex manual ever. It will be fulfilling as it's brought under the covenant relationship that you have with your God. It was meant to be so. You see, sex is like fire. Fire in a fireplace is warm, productive. Take the fire out of the hearth, put it on the rug, it becomes very destructive. It has its place. You say, fire's bad. Who invented fire? 
No, fire is good in its place. Take it out of its place and it becomes wrong. I've noticed as a pastor, I speak to people all the time who think that they can outsmart God. Well, God doesn't know my personal circumstance. I mean, God is God, but he must have forgotten about me. And though I'm not married, I sleep with this young lady and it feels so right. Well, question, how come you're coming to me then feeling guilty and alienated? When you take it out of its context, it does make a person feel alienated and fills them with guilt. I found some interesting statistics. Two researchers from Family Life Seminars concluded that Christians generally experience a higher degree of sexual enjoyment than non-Christians. Another independent study by Redbook published a sexual pleasure survey showing the preferences of 100,000 women. Quote, sexual satisfaction is related significantly to religious belief. With notable consistency, the greater the intensity of a woman's religious convictions, the likelier she is to be highly satisfied with the sexual pleasures of marriage. Why? Why is that? Because pleasure is a byproduct, not a goal. And when in a marriage you seek to serve God and serve your spouse, it becomes very fulfilling and very enjoyable. But physical sex is only part of a whole. It's part of a relationship. There has to be commitment involved. So I thank the Lord for his dealing with all these little individual things about how my body is to operate and what is clean and what is unclean and what is favorable and what is not. Now let's move on and look at chapter 16, which is that hallmark chapter on the Day of Atonement. And this is where we'll close our study tonight in chapter 16. It's called Yom Kippur. Now this, is, this was sort of the day of the year. It was the Day of Atonement. It was the one day where the sin of the nation of Israel was dealt with in a culminating kind of a way. Um, it's sort of the Isaiah chapter 53 of Leviticus. It's very prophetic. And remember, as we mentioned last week, Jesus walking with those two guys from Jerusalem to Emmaus and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded all things concerning himself. I bet you he mentioned this chapter because this chapter points to Jesus Christ as our atoning lamb taking away the sins of the world and our scapegoat, one of the two goats that was released from a pinnacle outside of Jerusalem on Yom Kippur. And so this is a shadow. What do I mean by a shadow? Well, listen to Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, let no one judge you in food, drink, regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You know what that means? Don't let anyone say, well, you've got to keep the Sabbath. You better worship on the Sabbath. You better keep this festival and this new moon. Because Paul says, these are shadows of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, we know what a shadow is. Somebody walks down the street. Not only is their body there, but if the sun is shining behind them, is a shadow. The shadow is not them. It's a representation of them. It's a poor representation of them. All of these things pointed to Jesus Christ. He fulfills all of it. That's why Paul wrote to the Hebrews and says, don't go back into the observing of all of these rituals to be righteous before God. You've been set free in Christ. Yom Kippur was linked to another festival, the New Year, Rosh Hashanah. They're ten days apart. 
And during these ten days, there was a period of days of confession and ten days of repentance. They are called the days of awe in the Jewish calendar. Or as it says in Hebrew, yamim nuraim, days of awe. And between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Jew would reflect on his actions that past year and would make confession of his sins before God. In fact, many of them would beat their breasts and make confession. Uh, the Talmud writes about Yom Kippur and says, quote, This is man's last chance through his thoughts and his actions to influence God's verdict. That's how it became to be known. Somehow I can influence what God is going to pass on that judgment day to me. Now look at verse 31. Just jump ahead a little bit. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. Traditionally, the interpretation of this verse is that to afflict the soul is to withhold yourself from having food. You fast on that day. You don't eat at all. You afflict your souls by fasting, withholding food from your body. This was the tenth day of the month of Tishri, the first day of the new year or the first month of the new year. And the tenth day, uh, ten days after Rosh Hashanah came this. Now, let me just tell you a few other traditions that have come into play with uh, Yom Kippur. Many Jews today will not wear anything but sneakers on Yom Kippur. It's one of the traditions. Sneakers made of rubber or canvas, not leather. Because leather was seen in ancient times as a luxurious material. And part of afflicting your souls is to withhold yourself from having that luxury. Sort of like the Roman Catholic Church sees as Lent. But on that day they would wear sneakers of, or today many of them do, sneakers of a cloth or of rubber. They would then withhold themselves from having any pleasurable activities. No sexual intercourse on that day. Um, no bathing on that day. They would beat their breast on Yom Kippur. The right hand over the left breast doing what they called Al-Chet, confession of sins. Remember the man Jesus spoke about in the Gospel of Luke who wouldn't lift his eyes toward heaven but beat on his breast and he said, Be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. That was the idea of Yom Kippur and perhaps that was the reference that Jesus was making. At the end of Yom Kippur, the last festival would be a long blow of the shofar, the ram's horn, the Jewish trumpet. They would blow it for a long time, expressing the heart of the worshipers, saying it's been a long, hard time of afflicting our souls and we're really going to try hard this next year. Now there was another ritual among some of the Jews that the following day after Yom Kippur, they'd get up early and go worship at the synagogue. Because there was Jewish folklore that said, Satan will try after Yom Kippur, when you think, it's all over with, my sins are atoned for, and you sort of get lax, that Satan will come in and try to trip you up so you get up early and you go to the synagogue. That's still prevalent among many people in folklore to this day. Now let's look at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Remember Nadab and Abihu who brought strange fire into the Lord. When they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come simply at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering, and of a ram as a burnt offering. 
He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash, with a linen turban on his head he shall be attired. These are the holy garments, therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Now, God said, don't come in any time. You couldn't just say, I'm going to go talk to God today and start whistling your way up to the tabernacle and just walk into the Holy of Holies. It'd be your last step. How different that is from the New Testament, right? They came with fear and trepidation. Even the high priest, once a year, the only one allowed into the Holy of Holies, had to take those ginger steps, hoping his heart was right, he'd made proper atonement. However, in the New Testament, let us therefore come how? Boldly. Why? Because it's a throne of mercy and grace. As it became after the blood on the Day of Atonement was sprinkled on this place. Now, only the high priest could perform this. No assistance could be given. Another picture of Jesus, who alone, by himself, as a great high priest, took upon himself the sins of the world. He didn't die and then have somebody else die next to him. There's a church in Rome that has a crucifix. Has Jesus dying for the sins of the world on one side. If you walk around the cross, there's a, it, has, it has Mary dying on the same cross. Didn't happen. Jesus took our sins alone. He had the iniquity of us all laid upon him at the cross. And the high priest went into the Holy of Holies alone. This is interesting too. I think you'll pick up on the analogy right away. The high priest didn't wear his glorious garments on Yom Kippur. He wore the common garments. The linen trousers that the rest of the priests wear. Not the golden breastplate. He wore the linen sash and the linen belt and the linen turban. He wore common priestly garb. A picture of Jesus who in heaven laid aside his glory. He emptied himself, became a man, clothing himself in humanity. That's what we celebrate Christmas. That's what it's all about. And came in the likeness of sinful men. As we go on, the high priest first bathed, as we saw, he dressed. He brought a bull and a ram to the tabernacle. He offered them for himself. He offered sacrifices for the people. He took two goats and he cast lots. Look at verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats, present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. If you go to Jerusalem today and you go to the Temple Institute, they will show you the garments that they are reconstructing out of linen for the third temple that they say will be built someday. And they have the lots and the lot case for the scapegoat. And they say, when the sacrifices are reinstituted in our temple, these are going to be the two lots. One for the scapegoat in the wilderness and one for the goat to be killed. Look down at verse 10. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. 
Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers seven times. So he'd go out in the outer court, taking fire from the brass altar, going inside the first compartment, the holy place, where there was another altar of incense. He would take incense, put it in a censer, go into the very veil of the Holy of Holies where there was that lid, that ark of the covenant with the angels looking down upon the lid. Blood would be sprinkled on the seat, on the lid of the ark, and smoke would fill the place. Now that lid with blood on it was very significant because inside of it, it had a copy of the law that was broken. Not only physically, but spiritually, they failed to keep the law of God. And as long as those angels looked down upon that lid, they were gazing down, so to speak, at the broken law. But blood covered it on that day, and they saw atonement that was made for the people. And in Exodus 25, God says, the only place I'll meet you is on that lid. You want to meet? You want to hang out? It has to be over shed blood on that mercy seat. That's where I'll meet with you. That's where I'll commune with you. On that day, a miraculous transformation took place. A throne of judgment became a place of mercy. And with that vicarious or substitutionary slaying of the animal, spreading of the blood upon the mercy seat, God eradicated their sins. That's what it was all about. Now to this day, Jewish people do not have the sacrifice of animals according to their law, which poses a major problem for them. What did they do with sin? And they have explanations, and I've spoken in Jerusalem to the some of the Orthodox people about it. What do you do with sin? And their explanation is very weak, very tenuous. On the Day of Atonement, those ten days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, they're hoping to balance in their minds all of their good deeds against their bad deeds, trying to come in their own righteousness. Even though their law, the Tanakh, in Isaiah, God said, all of your righteousness is as filthy rags. They don't have a temple. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But in these days, there was a heavy sigh when the sins were atoned for. As long as that broken law had no blood over it, it reminded them we failed. I told you before, but in my house for a long time, I was talking to my mom about this. There was a hole that I put in the door. As you walk in my front door and you turn left, there was a bedroom door. It used to be my bedroom door. And one time as a kid, I was angry, and I thought I was Joe Kung Fu Karate Man. And I kicked real high a big hole in the door. And my parents left that for years. I mean, I would have replaced it or made the kid replace it, but they left the hole there. And so people would come in the house. What's that hole there for? I'm going, oh, no. I had to face up to this for a long time. When the door was replaced, it was like heavy sigh. Wow, it's over. There's no remembrance of it. 
when the lid of the Ark of the Covenant had blood upon it and it was transformed into a seed of mercy, the, no doubt a heavy sigh went out throughout the nation of Israel. Verse 17, There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, for all the congregation of Israel. He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. Shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat. Put it on the horns of the altar all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Cleanse it, sanctify it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron, verse 21, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. Now, this last time when I went to Israel, I met a guy who was into four-wheeling. He was an Israeli, conservative, practicing Jew, and we hit it off. And uh, he took me up one day uh, out to the wilderness of Judea, out from Jerusalem. He goes, hey, let me, let me show you around uh, sort of my way, without the tour bus. Let, let me just show you my land down by the Dead Sea in Jerusalem in, in my Jeep. So we piled in his Jeep and just went all over the place. Went down toward Jericho, toward the Dead Sea, toward En Gedi, Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were, and just saw it all in four wheel and just, it was, it was a great time. And he took me up this one escarpment where there's a desert prominence that comes out a little bit down from Jerusalem, and it's a tremendous view all the way throughout uh, the Judean wilderness, the desert. You can see the Dead Sea in Jericho, and you can see the, the, another mountain chain of Israel going up. And he said, this is the mountain, and we know it's substantiated. This was the mountain where the scapegoat was released. And you could see the Temple Mount as you looked over in Jerusalem. And what they did is they had sort of a chain of communication going on. The lot was cast. The goat was killed. The other goat was taken to this escarpment, and it was watched. The man watched to go down the embankment till it was lost in the Judean wilderness. No shepherd could take it. No one could tend it. It was lost completely, symbolic of, as I see this goat depart, this scapegoat is taking my sins away. Not only is bloodshed, but is, it's removed from me. As far as the east is from the west, it would go east toward the Dead Sea. The sins are being carried away. And that's where our vernacular uses the phrase, well, it's just a scapegoat for you. It's from the idea of the scapegoat bearing your sin away. Okay, the man watched it disappear. He would light a torch as soon as there was no sight of that goat. He'd light a torch, and the people a little bit north in Samaria, in the mountains, in the northern mountains of Judea, would see it, and they'd have a guy on another mountain, and they would put up a torch so the people in Samaria would hear it. And on one day, within a couple hours, the entire land of Israel, it was sort of like ancient telephones, when the torch went up, they knew that their sins were atoned for. And of course, when the torch went up on the first mountain, the people behind them in Jerusalem in the temple 
could see it, and a huge convocation of singing and worship went on. The lamb is, or the goat has been slain. The lamb is, uh, the blood has been sprinkled on the tabernacle, and now the scapegoat is out into the wilderness. And there was great singing and great rejoicing. Now it's happened to us. We should be rejoicing and singing continually over the fact that you don't have to do this. That your sins are taken away by the Lamb of God. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put up their torch. And then Paul saw that and he got saved and he's put up his torch and young Timothy heard it and he put up his torch and it's been passed down on all the little mountaintops till we get to our day. And we better put up that torch like we mentioned this morning and pass the baton and tell other people about the good news and have great singing and rejoicing. And let's just finish it up here. Uh, verse 23, Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, shall leave them there. He will wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. He who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterwards that he may come into the camp. And the bull is taken care of. And uh, look at verse 29. This shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. You shall afflict your souls, do no work at all, whether a native in your country or a stranger who dwells among you. From that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as the priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting, for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel and all their sins once a year. As he did, and he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Atonement. What a word. Don't forget its meaning. You could break it apart and discover its meaning. At one meant. Atonement is to take two parties previously separated and join them together and make them one. Makes you and God at one with each other. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus the Messiah. He's brought us together. You and God were separated. You need a sacrifice. You need a substitutionary atonement. Someone must die. Will it be you for all of eternity? It doesn't have to be. It can be Jesus Christ who took your penalty on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, your scapegoat, and you can live forever. Sing and rejoice. You say, well, that's, that's easy believism. There's nothing easy about it. It costs God everything. It might be easy for you to come to faith in, in God. It is easy. All it takes is an act of faith. That's all. You're saved by faith through grace. But don't think it's cheap. I often hear people talk about what Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined as cheap grace. There's nothing cheap about grace. It costs God His only Son to die for your sins. 
Now you have to receive that, and then he'll change your life. But you have to admit what most people in society won't admit. I have sinned, and I am sorry. Would you atone for my sins, Lord Jesus?